As can be seen from behind me, today's reading is from Matthew 17, beginning at chapter 1 through to 13, page 984. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, the brother of James, and led them to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, A bright cloud enveloped them, and the voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. (coughs) Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. So um, just to recap on where we've got to, the apostles represented by Peter had come to the point where they'd recognised that Jesus was the long-expected Messiah back in chapter 16, verse 15, when asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are Christ, the Son of the living God. But exactly what his understanding was, was far from uh, complete. He had not grasped the full picture. He grasped a part of it. And so Jesus starts on a re-education exercise to alter their expectations. So verse 21 of the previous chapter, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised from the dead. Now that doesn't fit into Peter's mindset at that point. Suffering and messiahship to him cannot possibly go together. And so Peter took Jesus aside and as we know, he rebuked Jesus. He says, never Lord, this shall never happen to you. And so Jesus turned to Peter and said, and very strongly, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. I mean, Peter would have been horrified to hear that. But he doesn't realize that what he's saying is a great temptation to Jesus by the devil 
to deflect him from his course. So no, this must be Jesus' course of action. He does not like the idea of suffering. You get that in the um, Garden of Gethsemane on the night he was arrested. And because he knows that it will involve on the cross separation from God his Father. And he knows that it has to be done. And so he emphasises it again to aid, no doubt, his own resolve, but so that they, the disciples, know what is coming. Jesus says to them, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But this period of suffering between where he is and to where he'll get to will be strange. It will be tragic. It will be awful. But the end of the story is glory. There is resurrection. There is the ascension. And for us, there is looking forward to the second coming. For the Son of Man is going to come, verse 27, in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. So here in this, that brief passage we looked at last week, the Messiah, the suffering servant, the Son of Man are all blended together to give a full, Jesus, a full picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus is up to. And as we drew those threads together last week, we saw, maybe you saw for the first time, how those various Old Testament expectations begin to come together in Jesus, the Messiah, the idealised human king of God's people, the suffering servant, the one who will atone for the sins of the people, and the Son of Man, the divine visitor. You see, we need a leader to steer us through life. We need somebody to pay the price for our sins. But such are human, so they can represent us before God. But they also need to be perfect, and that's only possible if such a person is also divine. And then, as if to give a glimpse of reality, to hold on to through the hard times, he promises to his disciples, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then a week later, three of them, Peter, James and John, see Jesus as he really is and will be forever. And we read in verse 1 of chapter 17, after six days... Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before him. The word transfigured, the word behind it is um, what we would call metamorphosis. That's the word. And so we have this picture of a change. We use it to explain the change between a, a, a caterpillar and a beautiful butterfly. And we read that he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. So they, the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, are to hold on to that reality of Jesus as they see him rejected by his own people, and they see him suffer, and they see him die. 
Their expectation of the arrival of the Messiah had meant for them imminent glory for all his people. The end would be now. That's what they thought when they were seeing this. Suffering was about to come to an end, not start with a vengeance in their thinking. But this gave them a big paradigm shift when they encountered the transfigured Christ. And they would need to hang on to that revelation as they saw things happening which did not, for the time being, come together for them in one coherent picture. Fortunately, while it might not have been in theirs, it was in Christ's big picture. He and the Father had planned this from all eternity. But, as a human being, he had to discover again through his study of the scriptures. Well, let's get our bearings. Where did all this take place? That's where the little map might help you. Um, there's, uh, there's Mount Tabor, which is um, southeast of Nazareth, due west of the River Jordan. And it's the place that you'll probably be taken to or directed to in Israel today if you are on a pilgrimage. You'll get off your tour bus, you'll transfer to a Mercedes taxi and race up the 1,900-foot mountain. And if you survive the experience, I can remember, I, I actually walked up it when I was 19, but I got a taxi down and the guy had one arm. And, you know, it's just constant kind of, but he had a knob on the steering wheel. So he'd go right round like that, and then we go round like that. And you think, goodness me, he's going to shoot off any moment now. But uh, I guess that wouldn't be good for business. But, so if you survive getting to the top, you will have a beautiful view of the plain of Esdraelon. However, when you look at the map, it's hardly on the way to Capernaum, which is the next place, I think, in verse 24, that is referenced in Matthew uh, 17. More likely a site, though, is Mount Hermon, which is 9,321 feet on the very northeastern corner of Israel. It's a few miles north of Banias, known in Jesus' day as Caesarea Philippi, the place where Peter had sussed out that Jesus from Nazareth was Christ the Messiah. Now, it may surprise you to know that actually for much of the winter, Mount Hermon is covered in snow. In fact, on the Israeli side, it's a ski resort. Much of the mountain, though, including the summit, is currently in Lebanese and Syrian territories. And it's a favoured location among scholars. But as Don Carson points out in his commentary, it is not exactly on the way to Capernaum. You're going north before you go south. And he suggests Mount Miron, which was 3,926 feet. It's the highest mountain in what are the present-day Israeli borders. Now, I'd never heard of this suggestion until I read about it this week, but it could well be so, and it has a certain plausibility to it. If you just extend the arrow towards Hatzor. Hatzor was one of the principal fortresses defending uh, Israel. And uh, if you were going from Caesarea Philippi to Capernaum, one main route you'd take would be to go on the highway that goes past Hatsor, and to the west of Hatsor is Mount Miron. Ultimately, of course, 
What matters is that Jesus was transfigured on a mountain. The fact that we're not quite sure which mountain it is doesn't really matter. It could be any three of them. I think it's I think some have more plausibility than others, and that's about as far as I think I'd go. Now, when was it? Now, if, you, if you've got somebody in your house group who's got the ESV Study Bible, which is a very good investment, you would see, and they may have shared with you um, when they looked at the end of uh, last week's study, that there are six possibilities that people kind of put forward to answer the question, some who are standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And some of the suggestions put forward are the resurrection or ascension of Jesus, Pentecost, the destruction of Jerusalem, the spread of the church, the return of Christ at the second coming, which if that was the case, Jesus would have been wrong. So I think we'd rule that out to start off with. Or the transfiguration six days later. Now for my money, and I think I'm with the scholarly consensus here, what Jesus was predicting in the end of chapter 16 actually took place at the beginning of chapter 17. There, some of the disciples, Peter, James and John, saw it was an objective event what Jesus will be like when he comes in the power of his kingdom. And that's the view, I think, that is supported by Peter himself, who, after all, was there, and which he records in his second letter, chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. He writes, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And he goes on. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So for my money... That's pretty conclusive. So six days after the realisation at Caesarea Philippi, it happens. A specific time in a specific place. It's not a vision. It's not a dream. It's not in their heads, in other words. It is actually tangible and real. Hence they try and put little booths up for people. It is objective. So what was it? Well, it's a theophany, to use theological shorthand. It is an appearance of God on earth. There are a few in the Old Testament. In this case, Jesus was seen in all his glory, as he really is. And it is a preview of his future exaltation. Now, Moses, he left the earth. He died 1,300 years before. Elijah left the earth. He didn't die. 900 years before. Moses represents the law and Elijah is the first of a great line of prophets in the Old Testament. 
As in the Old Testament, when people on rare occasions encountered God in one of these theophanies, there is usually a bright light, verse 5. And very often, perhaps unsurprisingly, terror as well, verse 6. Again, that's what Moses, that's what Elijah had encountered. And then Jesus says, verse 9, tell no one until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now why not? You've seen Jesus as he really is. Why not tell people now? Why do you have to wait till the resurrection? Well, I think the answer is quite clear. I mean, if the disciples are having difficulty in grasping a suffering Messiah, just think how at that point in time, how much others would also experience messianic misunderstanding on a grand scale, so much so that they could have really messed up Jesus' mission plans. They could have kind of um, done all sorts of things that would have made that considerably more difficult to achieve. And let's see in detail why it happened. We've already seen that what God is saying. He's saying through this event, this is what Jesus is really like. This is what he will appear like when he returns at the end of time, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he's done. So we see that suffering, yes, but ultimately success. Between these two great revelations, the transfiguration and the parousia, the second coming, one was then in private, the other one will be public at the end of time. Between these two great revelations, strange things will happen. But hang on in there, he's saying to Peter, James and John and through them to others. But God is going to win out. He will achieve his mission, but not before suffering. And like Peter, who first believed and then saw... So we believe, and one day we too will see Jesus as he is, as he returns in glory. Now the interval can sometimes be hard. John Payton was a Christian missionary. In 1858, he and his young pregnant wife went to a primitive island that they named Tanara in the New Hebrides in the Pacific. During the first year, she died of fever. This was followed 17 days later by the death of their one-month-old son. Grief-stricken, John Patton buried his wife and child and he recorded these words. <clears throat> it's very difficult to be resigned, left alone and in sorrowful circumstances but feeling immovably assured that my God and Father was too wise and loving to err in anything that he does or permits, I looked up to the Lord for help and struggled on in his work. I do not pretend to see through the mystery of such visitations, wherein God calls away the young, the promising, and those sorely needed for his service here. But this I do know and feel, that in the light of such dispensations, 
it becomes us all to love and serve our blessed Lord Jesus so that we may be ready at his call for death and eternity. And notice he writes, I do not pretend to see through the mystery. He didn't understand or even see how it would all work out for good, but he knew that it would. And Peter and friends would, know, would not understand at the time what was happening to Jesus and what was going to happen to him. But they were to hold on to what they had seen and have faith that all would one day see Jesus like that too, even though that wasn't going to look a likely bet as events lead up to Jesus' crucifixion. But this episode was also an invigorating and an encouraging experience for Jesus himself. Through it, God the Father was once again endorsing his son and his mission. Remember at Jesus' baptism, the same words had come from heaven. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And remember that he, Jesus knew from reading passages like Isaiah 53 that spelt out his mission. He knew what he was born for. He knew what he had coming if he was to save the human race. But he wouldn't have relished the prospect, even if he had the promise, because the road to glory involved suffering and separation. He was tempted by Peter's protestation in 1622. And in response, he gave the first of four resolute statements that he must, which is a word that means it is absolutely necessary, suffer many things, be killed and rise again. And to try and talk him out of that path, Jesus sees as demonic. Not that Peter is demonic, but he is being used. You know, he doesn't understand and he says something which the devil relishes. Because if Jesus listens to Peter, Jesus would deviate off course. But Jesus doesn't. He is very resolute in rebuking Peter and re-emphasizing what his mission is. So Jesus would have found, 17 verse 5, being enveloped in the cloud, which in the Old Testament is always a mark of the presence of God, as it was with Elijah and Moses. He would have found that a great source of strength. And then to have that ringing endorsement, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased, listen to him. It would have strengthened his resolve to carry out his mission. And this event was also an education for the disciples. We've seen how they weren't expecting a Messiah who would have to suffer in order to save them. But that wasn't the only unlearning that they had to do. This episode reveals two more. They thought that the Messiah was just a human being, like the great prophets of old, Elijah and Moses. They thought that he could be limited or accommodated just like them. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, is it good for us um, to be, it is good for us to be here. 
If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then the voice again. But Jesus isn't simply another prophet. The voice says, he is my unique son. He's not simply a prophet. He's greater than either Moses and Elijah. And the voice says, we must listen to him. Now their other mistake was to expect the end now. Again, the offer to build these shelters suggests they expected the eternal rest to begin then, but it was not to be. Elijah and Moses are removed with God in the cloud, and Jesus is left with Peter, James and John to carry out his mission. And they were to say no more about it until the Son of Man, Jesus, had been raised from the dead. When, of course, all this would fall into place for them. So, some lessons to apply. Have you ever wanted evidence of life after death? Well, here you have it. Moses died 1,400 years before this. Elijah had gone to glory 900 years before. And here they are, alive with God, before Peter, James and John's very eyes. If you've ever wondered what kind of appearance we will have in eternity, well, here is an indication. We will be human, we will be supernatural, and we will be recognisable. I've often wondered which period of my life might be recognisable. <laughs> I don't know. And um, if in the face of things going wrong in this life you are tempted to doubt, remember this glimpse of how it will be at the end of time when Jesus makes a glorious return and everyone will fall down and recognise his authority. And while we're waiting for that great day, how are we to live? Well, by listening to Jesus. Listen to him we are told by the voice of God. Believe, exercise faith, and we will see. Remember, Peter had watched and seen Jesus at work and concluded he was the Christ. And having expressed his faith, he saw, and we will too, eventually. And probably the clearest lesson to take away from this passage is in the face of a world which says Jesus Christ is just one for the history books, remember that he is going to win in the end. And finally, these other few verses. What about Elijah and John the Baptist? Well, in Jewish thought in the first century AD, at that time, Elijah, or an Elijah-like figure, would precede the coming of the Messiah. That they understood from Malachi chapter 3. But of course they hadn't recognised John the Baptist. And so in their minds the forerunner of the Messiah was still to come. What does Jesus say? Verse 12. But I tell you that Elijah has already come 
and they did not recognize him. So, we, we may suffer like John the Baptist, even in a small way like Jesus, the Son of Man, like the apostles as they uh, spread out across the world after the events of the resurrection, ascension and Pentecost. But like the risen Christ and the endorsed John, we too will win out in the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this record of the events of the life of Jesus. And we thank you that uh, we can see how, if we're slow to understand the Christian faith, that we're in good company. Although we do have the advantage of being able to see things uh, with hindsight. And we marvel at how the way in which you were patient with the disciples and as they learned and as they prepared for what was going to happen and as they realized after the resurrection, it all fell into place for them. We pray that it might all fall clearly into place for us and we might have hope, the sure and eternal life that is to come as we are with you in glory forever, in a new heaven and a new earth, perfect, recognizable, human, supernatural. Amen.